All right. Well, welcome again, everyone. Welcome again, everyone online. Uh, this is the season of Easter. Uh, the Easter season isn't just one day. It goes for several weeks after. And usually the book of Acts comes up in our readings. I only had you read one today. You can thank me for that uh, because it was so long, but I didn't want to cut it short. What I'm going to be doing is a little bit of a series just focusing on these Acts passages. Now, if, if you're kind of, we get a little refresher on the Bible, but the book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. You got the four Gospels, then you have Acts. And Acts covers what happens after Jesus departs and goes back to the Father. So it's that very first generation of Christians. It's the 12 disciples and then the initial, the first apostles, they were the, the next ones that were around them. What happened to them? And then it picks up with the apostle Paul and then, then it ends. We don't get, we, then the story keeps going and going. But she talks about how Christianity begins and it starts out with those 12 and then it begins to spread. And before it goes out into the world with the Apostle Paul, it will start in Jerusalem, at the temple. And the disciples would go there, they would preach. What happened wasn't always pretty when it started out as, at home. Remember, it was Jesus who said, a prophet is never accepted in his hometown. But they would start out in the temple. If you look at the temple, here's just a little kind of a diagram of it. It was, an, a, very, it was a large building, but it's also a complex. It's about four acres. Uh, that lot is four acres. It's still there today. At least the foundation is all that's left. Um, and it's four acres, so there's an inner part where only the priests can go, and then there's another court around that where men could go. No women, sorry, that's the way it was. Um, and then there's the big outer court you can see. And uh, the court of Gentiles, where even, where even my Viking ancestors would have been allowed to go. They wouldn't have, but they could have. Um, and uh, so this is where they go. So Stephen, we pick up today in Acts with this guy named Stephen, who is one of the original apostles. He wasn't one of the 12, but we think he was one of those who kind of hung out with the 12. So he might have been one of the 17 or something. But he goes out, he's in the big outer court, and he decides to, do, it says he did some preaching, but it also said he did lots of signs and wonders. And so he drew a crowd, because there would have been lots of people in that outer court preaching about this, that, or the other thing, but signs and wonders, now that gets, that gets people's attention, right? And so people are drawn to him because he can do things, he can do miracles. And then it says this group of Jews show up, but it, it's very interesting, they specify they're Greek-speaking Jews from outside of Jerusalem. So there were Jews all over the Roman Empire, so these were Jews from outside of Jerusalem. They were Greek speakers. They came in, and they were not happy with Stephen. They didn't like what he was doing. So what did they do? Uh, they go and they get these complaints. They bring these complaints to the high council against him. Let's look at what the complaints are. This man never stops saying things against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. So these are the charges they bring about Stephen. First is that he says Jesus will destroy the temple. Now mind you, this is the same high council that 
only a few weeks earlier had, had decided that Jesus needed to die. It's the, same, it's the same people. And so Stephen's back in front of them. And so now the argument is that Jesus, you guys just kill. Watch out, he might come back and knock over the temple. I know you don't believe he's back, but he could come back. And if he does, he'll knock down the temple. One guy alone. That huge temple. Somehow it's going to happen. Watch out. It's not a very rational fear. But, you know, these are priests. Their living depends on that temple. So this was, he knew they, they knew they were hitting at sensitive stuff, right? The priest would have gone, oh, whoa, what? He's going to destroy the temple? And then the second one, Jesus is going to change the customs. He's going to change the customs. He's, he's not just going to destroy the building at the center of our religion, but he's going to teach people to ignore our sacred laws and traditions. We will lose the physical center of our religion and we'll lose the traditions that keep our religion alive. It's just going to be a free-for-all. All, and think about this. I mean, if we lose the customs, it's all going to disappear. That's the key word there, right? Change the customs. Now, I didn't say which customs he's going to change. It's just the customs in general, which is how fear often is, right? Fear of change is often not very specific. It's often kind of general. Things are going to change. Who? But I mean, you ever, I mean, it's not like that's an old, a line that people stopped using, right? I mean, you hear that same line today. So-and-so's bringing in new ideas. He's te they're teaching the kids. They're teaching the kids to follow new ways. Our culture's going to be destroyed from within. We better silence these ideas. I mean, I hear it every day, not just, all over the world. Someone's always accusing someone of trying to undermine their culture. And maybe it's just because we're in a global world where it's a lot easier for ideas to travel around and a, lot, and a lot easier for people to travel around. It's harder to keep your culture in a bubble. Maybe that's what's, that's what's accelerating the fear. I don't know, but it tends to be why I think mobs can be so vicious about new ideas. Because if somebody comes to attack you with a sword, you know who your enemy is, right? And, that, and, and it's easy to rally people behind. Hey, I see the enemy's coming. They're attacking us. They're marching at us with a bunch of swords. So what do you do? You hand out swords to your people and you fight back. And, you, and it bonds everybody inside. It becomes an internally cohesive thing. It's an old dictator playbook, right? Those people are coming to attack you. We need to rally and fight. It's been used a million times. And, but if people start thinking new ideas, now who do you fight? How do you, how, how do you kill an idea? You have to kill the person who brings the idea. And that is usually more scary than armies. Way more scary than armies. And it's funny, because Christianity, we started out as the religion of the new ideas that were a threat to the traditions of the culture. And now people tend to think that Christian, you know, the media wants to, is portraying us as reactionaries, because uh, there definitely are some who are, trying to block progress. But we were the radicals. We were the ones driven out of the public places that we were accused of teaching people not to follow the rules. It's important to note, and I think that, that keep in mind that when we think about persecution of Christians, 
I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding. I think over here, you know, we tend to look at it as they just don't like us because of what we believe. But in most cases, most places don't care what you believe as long as they don't see you as a threat to their way of life or their, their power or their systems. It's when they see you as potentially undermining those, that's when they get really nervous. That's when the mobs come out. And so most persecution of Christians is because somebody in authority thinks that these ideas are a threat to their system of authority that they've got. If you, th you can think of the 300 years in Japan I don't know how many of you knew this, but for 300 years in Japan, Christianity was illegal. Absolutely illegal. It was the death penalty to be Christian. And Christianity was the only religion that was illegal. So you could be Shinto, you could be Buddhist, you could be nothing, but you could not be Christian. And so if, you were, if they caught you as a Christian, you know, there were various things that were done, various tortures, and, and, and there was a mass crucifixion one time, a whole bunch of families, like 25 people. And, and, but the concern was that the Tokugawa shoguns at that time had, were nervous that Christianity was going to become a foothold for Spanish colonialism. And, they were ner and, and, and the Dutch, because there's a power battle going on, here's your history lesson, but the Dutch wanted all the trade with Japan. They didn't want to compete with the Spanish. So they convinced the, the Tokugawa emperor that, that the Catholic Church was in league with the Spanish Watch out, because the Catholic Church works with the Spanish, and the Spanish want to colonize you like they just did the Philippines. And the emperor said, we're not going to be colonized. Kill every Christian. And for 300 years, that was the rule. Except sometimes they would decide that they'd offer you a chance to convert. So they'd take you, and they'd tie you up upside down, and then they'd dip you into a giant pool of feces, and then, but, leave your, but leave one arm loose. So that then, if you decided you wanted to live, you'd raise your hand up through it and then admit that that meant you accepted Buddhism. Now, that wasn't exactly how Buddha taught things. But if you're nervous that your whole country's way of life is going to get eroded from within, see, when we get scared, that's human nature, right? When we feel threatened, we're very willing to violate the beliefs of our own teachings to protect those beliefs. Which is, there's a hypocrisy in there, but that's how we are, right? People can be very peace-loving, but if, there are, if, if we feel like being loving is going to be a threat to us, now suddenly we'll be very violent in the name of nonviolence. By the 1800s, Christianity was legalized, uh, and it turns out they discovered all these Christians who'd been living in hiding the whole time. They'd been pretending to be Buddhist. They'd go to the festival and, and do their little thing and then come home and then they'd have little Bible readings tucked in secret. In the 1800s, they were told, hey, now you can come back to church. But they were so used to worshiping at home, most of them didn't. Kind of interesting history. But this is essentially kind of the thing that's happening to Stephen. The, the, this is the charge that's happening to Stephen. And then Stephen could have gotten up in front of the high council and, and, and given a nuanced and articulate explanation of Jesus' understanding of the nature of the law and how he really was fulfilling the law and not destroying the law. But fulfilling the law sometimes means reinterpreting the law. And there's always been exceptions in rabbinical law for, you know, being loving and making exceptions on the Sabbath. So I'm not really teaching destroying the law. I'm teaching a new and different interpretation of it. He could have given them that very nuanced description of it because these were scholars. They understood those exceptions. They understood the law. He could have given that. 
Yeah, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he launches into a big lecture, because that always works. <laughs> Let's look at Acts 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. They're his ancestors too, but whatever. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. So you look at Stephen, you had to wonder what's going through his head when you're standing in front of these powerful people who have your life in their hands, and your thinking is, what's the best response? I know. I'll call them murderers and hypocrites, and, and I'll accuse their ancestors of being murderers, and I'll say that they're the ones against God. You're the ones violating the, the, the rules. This is what we call a you people lecture. Right? They teach you at the seminary, don't do you people lectures. No matter how frustrated you are, don't do a you people lecture. You know, it's what my homeowners association used to do. And you know how I love my homeowners association. <laughs> They're very good, they keep out the weeds, they prevent cars on blocks, you know. And they used to write these articles in the newsletter. And I, I used to, I, I, I lived for that newsletter. It was the highlight of my quarter. I was like, okay, who, who, how are we going to get lectured at this time? Th there was one, it looked up, the guys, they started it, and I know the guy, and God bless him, I love him to death, but he was trying to like blunt it a little bit. He was trying to both lecture and sound chummy, and so he started out with, folks, 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 some of you have not been putting your trash cans away. Some people are not pulling their weeds or leaving cars on the street overnight. Folks! And it was sort of like you were being patronized with one hand and threatened with the other. And it was sort of like if Gomer Pyle became a drill sergeant. It's like chummy but lecturing. Oh, I, miss, I miss those HOA lecture, lectures. Uh, no, it's, I used to take my, I'd take screenshots and post them online, and I'm like, hey, see what my association is doing this time. I haven't, I haven't gotten as many of those lately. I'm so disappointed in them. You know what they're doing now? Can you believe this? The other week, they came by to borrow my radio flyer wagon so they could drive and walk around the neighborhood and collect canned food for the food bank. And then, they were running picnics in the park, inviting all the neighbors to hang out. And then, they did a big citrus sharing party. We'd go from house to house and pick each other's fruit and share. I'm like, come on! You're taking away all my good sermon content! You're supposed to be warning me! and threatening me, and scaring me with all the decadent things those teenagers are supposedly doing in the retention basin. <laughs> you used to give me so much good content, and now you're like doing service projects. 
But I wonder if maybe, just maybe, they started thinking, you know, maybe you people lectures aren't the best way to build community. Maybe that's not what they're for. So why do a you people lecture then? Well, it isn't to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie said, don't ever get into an argument. It's a waste of time. No one's ever changed anyways. And he's kind of right. I don't know if you've ever heard someone, I mean, I don't know anyone who picked up that newsletter and said, oh yeah, your, you know, smarmy tone and patronizing, you know, lecture of me made me realize that I really was wrong and you're right. Thank you for showing me the right way. I'll definitely go get that trash can right now. And, and, and lectures like that, they don't really get you out of trouble. Right? I mean, it's not, like, it's, not like he, it's not like Stephen got up there and he thought that, you know, lecturing that high council was going to get them to go, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. You know, a few weeks ago we killed Jesus, but now we see what a great guy he was. Oopsie. They weren't going to free Stephen. And I think, I wonder if maybe that's part of the point of it is that Stephen realized that by the time you've gotten dragged in front of the high council and accused of undermining the culture and the identity itself, that you're not going to walk out of there alive, that they don't care whether there's facts, they can't even bring themselves to think of letting someone like that go. Right? They, they're the protectors of the traditions. I, I, I wonder if it was almost a little bit like one of those Russian courts you know, you go to a Russian court, you can get a defense lawyer, and I think they calculated 0.1% of the time you get acquitted. So pretty much by the time you're there, it's already a lost cause. So at that point, what are you going to do? What's Stephen going to do? Well, he decides he's not going to grovel and beg. And, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, you know. I think he decides, he's just, if I'm going down anyways, I might as well just give a speech. And maybe the speech isn't for the high council. Maybe the speech is for everybody outside. I, I think Stephen knows this is, this, is, this is the end. So if he's going to do it, why not just expose to the world what these guys are really like and put them in a situation where they're going to do exactly what they got mad at me for accusing them for doing. So what is he going to do? He's going to call them stiff-necked and murderers who persecute people, and they're going to be like, I'm not a stiff-necked murderer who persecutes people. Kill him! <laughs> oh, you, you showed us, didn't you? Or did you do exactly what Stephen said you would do? To prove him wrong, you did exactly what he said. He, they showed to the world that deep down... They saw their beliefs and their traditions as fragile, as easily threatened. And he showed that, that they protect their fragility with violence. They became what they were mad at being accused of. Sometimes, sometimes you have to speak up because that's the only power you have left. When you're stuck in a situation and there's no, there's no way to get out of it, there's no justice, sometimes speaking up is the only option you have left because you know groveling only undermines what you have and it probably won't work anyways. The court is rigged, your fate is sealed, why not just go down in a blaze of glory? This speech I don't think was for them. This speech was for everybody outside so they all could see. 
You're not changing their minds, but you can change the court of public opinion. You're influencing not the council, the people who are watching, and the future generations who preach about it. This is how the first Christian martyr dies. He gets taken out, and he gets stoned by the mob. And notice how the council got the mob to do their dirty work for them. But he gets stoned by the mob because they thought he was a threat to their culture, their religion, their laws. Again, he was one of them. Always important to remember that. He wasn't killed by the Romans like Jesus was. He was killed by his own people. But that's the dynamic of martyrdom. It exposes how the powerful view their selves and their power and their beliefs that they're very scared and very fragile. It shows how little faith they have that their own beliefs can stand up to new ideas and that they need violence to protect it. See, I don't, I don't think Stephen set out to die. I think he knew he wasn't going to get out of there. So rather than plead, let's just expose the powerful for what they are. So he, instead of begging, he just stood up. And so he accepted his role that at this point in his life, his place was to speak truth to power, to show what Jesus' message was really about. Amen.